Hey, hey, welcome to King of the Ride podcast. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back to yet another episode with my friend, formerly my team physician, Dr. Kevin Sprouse is our guest today. Dive back into our archives. Way, way back, episode number 19 was where we first talked here on King of the Ride. Dr. Sprouse is trained and certified in emergency and sports medicine, as well as being the team physician for EF Education First, NEPO. Additionally, he runs Podium Sports Medicine in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he sees athletes of all kinds, from cyclists to triathletes to golfers to football players and plenty of others across all levels of proficiency from folks who are new to sports, new to athletics, to seasoned professionals. In particular, I was excited to talk to Dr. Sprouse here as I record this two weeks from having my elbow surgically repaired, or bellbow, as Hazel calls it. I'm incredibly curious about what's happening inside my body all throughout this healing process because it's not as though it's happening in a, in a silo. It's not like a broken bone heals itself independently of the rest of the body. We'll talk about all the things that are happening, taking their toll on my body from head to toe throughout this healing process. The greater topic here is recovery. Recovery from an injury and what all is happening as described by Kevin on the medical level with, a, with very absorbable terms, understandable terms, and then described by me anecdotally, like why I'm not sleeping well, why my heart rate is skyrocketing, what the heck and why is HRV incredibly important here too. And then bigger picture, whether you've been injured or not, this is a conversation about what's happening on the topic of recovery among professional cyclists. What's happening during the Tour de France when riders are seeking their best recovery on stage three or stage 13? Why do some riders simply recover better, more quickly? How is it that they are not just responding to attacks, but they are initiating attacks there in week three? We've got all of that plus loads more. Again, for obvious reasons, I'm especially interested in this topic. I know you're going to dig it too. Folks, I want to thank Ride With GPS for coming along as a personal sponsor of mine now and all throughout the coming year. Let's call it a, a long time coming because I've been using their software for, I want to say, at least a decade, and now we've gone ahead and made it formal. Ride With GPS is the only mapping software that I use to create routes, to explore new areas, to compare rides, past and future. In particular, I am loving their new surface type feature where you can create a route and see if you're riding pavement or gravel. I mean, I'm asked all the time, hey, Ted, how do you create your routes, whether you're, you're at home or visiting a new place? To be perfectly honest, the answer is as simple as with Ride with GPS. Ride with GPS has a very handy offer that goes like this, 25% off either monthly or yearly subscriptions, just visit the following website, ridewithgps.com slash DC slash I am Ted King. Again, ridewithgps.com slash DC, like dot com, slash I am Ted King. Okie dokie, that's it from here at my desk. Let's send it over to our conversation, my conversation, this conversation with Dr. Kevin Sprouse. I am really excited to have you back in the show. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the theme of recovery. Now, specifically, here I am today, two weeks post-surgery after a, uh, a surgically repaired elbow. Uh, a little bit about the accident. I was in Arkansas. I was racing Big Sugar. Um, one of your riders, Nielsen Palace, was out there. He was at the front absolutely turning the screws to people. I thought you were going to say he took you out. I'm glad that's no, 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 <laughs> no. Although ironically, it was another couple pros that ended up helping me out. TJ Eisenhart and Floyd Landis were the only two people who stopped and helped uh, bring me to bring me to medical attention, um, which was very cool. It was nice to connect with those guys, albeit completely, literally and figuratively smashed. Um, so yeah, I mean. 
you know, I'm in the ER in Arkansas. I have a, a quick surgery to clean out the elbow. I flew home and then a couple days later, uh, I saw a surgeon here so as to be able to follow up with the surgeon who's gonna repair my elbow um, and, you know, continue to have that, that dialogue and discourse. Anecdotally, like I said, I'm two weeks today post-surgery. The first week to 10 days, I would say, um, I would describe as pretty terrible nights of sleep, but generally pretty much okay during the day. My guess is that has a lot to do with whatever painkiller concoction that I was on. When I'm not sleeping well at night, it's because I'm awake with a throbbing elbow and just in a lot of pain. And now here we are two weeks later, sleep is definitely improving. Uh, it's still imperfect. I'll get like two good nights, one bad night, whatever. The trend is definitely in the right direction. So the question to you being, a human body suffers the trauma of, of a fall, a broken bone. What is happening to that body over the course of recovery? It's, I mean, it's a, a really good question that is quite complex actually. And I think even a lot of doctors probably don't give it, um, give it the respect it deserves. So I saw the picture of your elbow that you posted after the race and it wasn't like a, a crack. I mean, you obliterated that thing. They, they rebuilt your elbow, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting talking to a lot of docs afterwards where, yeah, those who didn't know were just like, well, okay, I guess that looks a little bit crumpled. And doctors who I, who, who are doctors <laughs> said, wow, that's smashed. That's bone dust. That's yeah. That's obliteration to use your words. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think even with uh, those fractures that fall at maybe the more simple end of the spectrum, um, you know, which would be just kind of a quote unquote clean break. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of times, and I'm probably guilty of this too. We put patients in a cast and we're like, Oh, you know, it'll, it'll heal. Don't just kind of, be careful with it. We're going about your day. And we don't really step back and, and respect the process that's going on. And it doesn't mean that that's not appropriate treatment to just put somebody in a cast and let them go. Cause it is, it'll heal up, but it's kind of an amazing thing to think about what's going on. Um, and something that I've seen with kind of sink some endurance athletes. So we'll come back to that point in a minute, but the, the metabolic cost of healing a bone and the whole process starts is the minute it breaks, there's blood vessels all through bones. And so when it breaks, you, you kind of sever those, those vessels and you start bleeding around the fracture. And then you create this hematoma or this clot um, that has to kind of build pressure and then stop the bleeding. And so there's that process, which then immediately leads to an inflammatory process where there's all these inflammatory cells that are involved being released from the bone, being summoned from elsewhere in the body. And those inflammatory cells kind of kick off this cascade that is uh, their job is to kind of call into effect these other processes in the body that start to heal it. Right. So at that point within minutes to hours of the fracture, it's already a systemic issue. It's not just your elbow anymore. Like your mm -hmm. body is reacting to this thing. Mm -hmm. And so you have this massive inflammatory response. And then over the course of kind of uh, call it three to five days, inflammation predominates, um, which is why it's so like swollen, sore, bruised. Um, and then you kind of hit this point where you start to, um, clean up the fracture a little bit. So there's cells that come in called osteoclasts that uh, the way I describe it to patients is it kind of, this isn't really what happens, but it, you can con conceptually think about it eating away the rough edges of the bone and everything that was just damaged mm -hmm. and getting to the good bone. So the good bone on either side of the fracture can pull together and heal. Okay. Right. Um, that's way oversimplified. And, and any doctors listening to that are just laughing at me, but that's kind of this process that's going on this cleanup process. And then your body starts to build bridges, um, what we call bony callus, a very soft bony matrix that connects the ends of the bone and then starts to build around that. So you actually build like a bone scar that uh, is, is bigger than the bone. So it looks almost like it's swollen. And then as that process is built out, those same osteoclasts are also kind of sanding it, so to speak. They're coming in and they're 
eating away and remodeling the bone. So it gets back to the way it looked. So that's probably a three to six week process, depending on what you did and, and the bone and how old you are and all kinds of stuff. But you can imagine from the minute it breaks to six weeks later, there's a significant metabolic cost and a, and a, a process that's, that's going on. Um, and a lot of us just think, well, it's in, it's in the cast. It'll heal now. Right. <laughs> you, you don't think about all this energy that's being used at the fracture site, but also just throughout the body systemically to heal this thing. Um, and when you have surgery, you kind of reinitiate that when, when the screws go in and things are replaced. And um, so it's not that your healing process starts over, but you're damp. I don't want to say damaging bone. I mean, you kind of are when the screw goes through, but it's for a very good purpose. Yeah. Um, but, but you're initiating some of the same process. So what you experience is, pretty typical, especially with an injury to the degree that you suffered, that the metabolism is ramped up. Um, I would guess you saw higher resting heart rates, uh, lower HRV, um, you know, do you, I, I know you're sponsored by whoop. Do you have the 4.0 yet? I do. I do. Yeah. That was actually a series of my next questions. Uh, could you see on, an elevated skin temperature at all? Fun is the wrong word, but it has been really interesting to um, to be able to look at all these analytics. Like I, I, I call them key performance indicators. Like you said, resting heart rate is sky high. Um, I mean, I'm typically around 40 beats per minute uh, when I'm in season and just sort of humming along riding a bike. Right now, I'm in the high 50s. Um, HRV. Almost which, 50% higher. Yeah. That's bananas. Crazy. It's crazy. Um, HRV, which I think is is sort of the pinnacle of, of whoop data. It's, I mean, that's where I find the most interesting piece, especially to go from a non whoop user to a whoop user to understand this metric. When I'm happy, I'm in about a hundred range. Um, I can get higher than that. I can get a little bit lower than that right now. I'm steadily in the low thirties. Um, respiratory rate quite a bit higher. And that one, you know, just makes sense as metabolically. I'm, I'm probably requiring more oxygen to heal. So, yeah, collectively, I mean, Whoop puts these into a, a, a crunchable algorithm and then it's readable in this zero to 100 point score um, divided into three, very easily to absorb data. You have your red, meaning you're not very recovered. Yellow means you're adequately recovered. Green means you're you're recovered and ready to, to stomp competition. I've had 11 days in the red, eight days in the yellow, and zero days in the green since then, which having also gone through this process of, of injuring myself before, it's just, it's, it's clear to me that this isn't quote unquote, just another broken clavicle. Like this is a, a bigger injury, a bigger, uh, uh, surgery, a bigger recovery. So, yeah, I mean, back to you, what are, what are the specifics among those things, among those metrics that is aiding in recovery. And yes, sorry to answer the question. My, my, uh, skin temperature has gone up a little bit. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I mean, it's not <laughs> cool. cool. It's cool for me as a doctor. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I do the same thing when, I mean, I was, before we started recording, I told you I was recently <laughs> sick and, mm -hmm. um, same thing. Like I'm looking at all those metrics and kind of one half of me is enjoying seeing the, the seeming validity and, and understanding the physiology behind it. And the other half is just pissed that it's not back where it was. And I don't feel good. So I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It gamifies it, which is great, but uh -huh. it gamifies it, which means you're sitting there and you're losing, right? You're not really losing, but you kind of feel like it. Mm -hmm. Right. You want, I mean, every day you want to wake up and be in the green and be like, yes, I'm going to take on the world today. Yeah. Today I woke up 12% recovered and I'm like, ah, but then at the same time, it's like, yeah, I am two weeks post-surgery. I'm not supposed to be ready to take on the world today so no no and, and even outside of injury and surgery uh -huh. realistically you would never want to be green all the time it means you're not training well you're not training hard enough you should have that periodization right yep. as a as an athlete for decades do you understand if your training's easy and you feel fresh every day something is wrong like something this is unsustainable or the fitness level is not there you're just cruising on coffee shop rides mm -hmm. so I think if you extrapolate that to every day, what you have to step back and look at is right now your training is healing this elbow. Mm -hmm. Like your purpose, if you were to put together a training peaks calendar, you know, you could put in 
you know, 24 hours, heel elbow and click it off each day. Oh, it's green. Great. I did that yeah, today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, that's what gets you back to the point that you can be on the bike, that you can be competing or just riding and having fun doing what you want to do. Um, I mentioned briefly that I've seen this kind of sink a lot of endurance athletes. And I think it, this can happen with other type sports too, but endurance athletes, especially those sports that are very weight dependent, body weight dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of athletes will get in a situation like this and they will drop their dietary intake drastically. Right. And they think, well, you know, I don't want to get fat while I'm healing and then come back and have to lose all this weight. And what data like this, I think is really powerful for is to demonstrate to athletes, no, your metabolism is cranked up. I mean, you are burning through calories. Your body needs it at this moment. And if you, if you restrict now, you're going to slow your healing process. You're going to come out the other end of this weaker. Um, I would rather you put on, you know, a couple pounds, a kilo and, and come through this strong, quicker, and you know, quickly shed those couple pounds on the back end, then worry about your weight at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it all kind of ties together. So when you're when you're looking at those whoop metrics and you see resting heart rate elevated overnight, that just means that your metabolism, your rate of burn, your your underlying processes are higher through the night. And for you, we're looking at a 50% increase in resting heart rate. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that your metabolic rate is 50% higher necessarily. I'd be surprised if it was that much, but like directionally it's, it's that way and it's significant. So mm-hmm. you've got to fuel that, um, your HRV being, you know, 70% lower is basically an indication that your balance of sympathetic to parasympathetic is far tilted from where it normally is. So mm-hmm. as an endurance athlete who one has that, that huge base of aerobic training, um, and the vagal tone that comes with that, which kind of encourages parasympathetic um, activity, and, and and two being someone who uh, is really tuned into recovery and kind of treating themselves well. When those tables turn, and you're really getting no no like recovery from a resting standpoint, mm-hmm. um, and your body's just cranked up, then your HRV. That, that seesaw tilts and you've got a ton of sympathetic activity and it just drives that HRV down. Mm-hmm. So another indication that, uh, that you, you need to respect that, respect it as metabolic cost and training, so to speak, and fuel it as well. Yep. Yep. Yeah. First thing I thought speaking on behalf of endurance athletes who've ever been injured everywhere. Okay, Cool. It's the off season. We're going into the holidays. This will be the time of year that you know I don't put on those extra two or three pounds. And then I, thankfully, I've, I've recognized the value of uh, my body needing to recover as a result of a book I'm reading, which has much less to do with with accidents uh, as much as endurance running training um, to to yeah. to scratch a curiosity of mine. Um, I'm curious. I describe. HRV, heart rate variability, as the the time in between heartbeats. And um, I suppose you it is advantageous to have a high level of variability, meaning your heart is not always beating metronomically with the exact same time in between, because that's indicative of a low heart rate variability versus high being a lot of variation. You touched upon it. That is about the extent of which I explain what HRV is and why it is a good thing. Why is it a good thing? And and, and like this is to me what really separates Whoop from from another product is that, to have that metric. And it's so interesting because up until the past couple of years, it's something we've never paid attention to. You're only paying attention to resting heart rate. Right. Um, so interestingly, we've been able to measure HRV and have kind of understood it since the 60s. Uh, I'm not wow. quite that old. I feel like I'm ah. getting there, but... Um, <laughs> But it always required a 12 lead EKG, like, you know, being hooked up and laying still on a table and all that. So there mm-hmm. was, there was insight into HRV for decades, but it's only been since we've been able to have these powerful computers in our pocket and these Bluetooth connected devices on our wrist that we can measure it in the wild. Um, yeah. And you describe it well. So HRV is a, is a measure of the, 
variability between heartbeats. So most people think if their heart rate is 60, then they're having one beat every second that, you know, like, uh, like clockwork, so to speak. Um, what really happens, and some people have noticed this just in taking their own pulse, that if you breathe in, your heart rate speeds up. And if you breathe out, it slows down. And you can actually kind of game it a bit. Like if you want to have a low pulse at the doctor's office, you can yeah. kind of breathe out and then kind of hold that exhalation and it'll come way down, <laughs> scare the nurse a bit. Yeah. Um, but that that variability with breathing um, is is measured by measured through that HRV metric. And so what you really have rather than one second, one second, one second is like 0. 0.9, 1.1, 1.1, 1. 1, 0. 0.9, 0. 0.8, and then back up. So it's like this, this curve. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly with HRV, a lot of people think of it as a cardiac metric. It's really not. Uh, it's, it's a neurologic metric that is measured at the heart. The heart is where the output is. So what we're really looking at is, the balance between the two autonomic nervous systems, the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight uh, stimulus. It's, you know, somebody, you walk out a door and somebody scares you and your heart rate shoots up. It's because the sympathetic system kicked in uh, versus the uh, parasympathetic, which is often thought of as rest and digest. So you've had a big meal, you lay down in front of, in front of the TV, watch some football, um, that parasympathetic kicks in. And so typically there's a balance between the two. And when that balance is really robust, uh, then HRV is high because it sympathetic will kick in and parasympathetic and sympathetic and parasympathetic. And so you get this constant change in the variation between beats. But then if one of those systems starts to predominate, then the heartbeat becomes very regular because you've just got the one input or predominantly the one input. Mm -hmm. So in a setting where you're overtrained or sick or healing, the sympathetic system, that fight or flight is kind of um, in overdrive. And that causes more regularity in that heartbeat, causes a faster heartbeat, which you're seeing in your resting heart rate. Uh, and it causes a lower HRV. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Fascinating data. Cool new piece of the puzzle that is everyday recovery. Um, so, so let's jump back a couple minutes in the conversation. I want to take this step to what you are doing in the world tour uh, as, as team physician for EF. Let's say hypothetically one of your riders crashes. Um, in my mind, three things are going to occur. One, road rash, you know, basic. Uh, it's a, it's a <laughs> barrier to entry in cycling. You're going to crash. But, you know, back up on your bike, you're rolling again. Two, orthopedic injury. Uh, I'm thinking Lawson, what, 2018, Lawson Craddock broke a clavicle, I believe, but was able to continue scapula. scapula scapula. It's a, it's an orthopedic injury. It's a wicked pain in the butt. Um, but he's able to continue or three, you know, something, um, uh, much more, let's say catastrophic, a concussion, uh, orthopedic injury that results in like mandatory stopping right then and there. Yeah. So knowing the consequence of what it takes for the body to heal and what it takes for a healthy body to perform at the world tour let alone when you're injured. Yeah. The question being, how do you as a team physician make decisions given any kind of injury? Yeah. So, I mean, I think my decision-making matrix with respect to injuries and riders uh, doesn't necessarily involve this data very early on. Um, it's much more centered around, you know, what just happened what are, you know, the ER doctor in me takes over. I've got training, both emergency and sports. And uh -huh. so initially it's, it's ER doctor, right? It's what just happened. What of this could be life-threatening, limb-threatening, dangerous long-term. Uh -huh. um, and so once we clear that hurdle, then we kind of move over to the sports medicine part and like, okay, you know, what is safe to push through? Uh, so a road rash, generally safe to push through um occasionally if it's just filthy and and huge swaths <laughs> and stuff like infection risk like it's just time to come off but that's rare i mean road yeah. rash usually is just like sorry here, you know, here's your bike um yeah. uh so so you know road rash is, is easier to get back on the bike and push through and and easier decision for me to make with the fracture uh we kind of know the typical things that happen. And at the roadside, we often 
can't be certain that something's fractured. You know, with some you can if there's deformity or whatever, but a lot of time it's kind of like my wrist hurts. Mm-hmm. I think I might have broken it. And it's like, well, you know, the Peloton's up there. We're yeah. back here. If you want to get on the bike and kind of see how you do, we're okay with that, right? Yeah. Um, again, assuming not a head injury, nothing like that, but somebody's, you know, but especially, you know, call it midway through the tour, they've built their whole season around this, whatever. Um, you know, it could just be a sprained wrist. And if you can get to the finish line safely, yeah. do it. But if you can't control the bike, if you can't brake, um, you know, those things will get you off the bike. So we, ha- we have a little bit of a, a test almost. And the fact that they're off the back facilitates that. We don't have to worry about them taking out other people. Um, sure. So it's kind of a safe place to, to test it, right? Yeah. Um, if something's obviously broken, then there's, uh, they can go with us in the car. They can go with the ambulance. There's a few different options for that. Um, mm-hmm. and then for the head injury, you know, if there's any concern we have, I'd say for the other injuries, we have kind of a high threshold to keep them off the bike. Uh, for the head injury, we have a low threshold. I'd rather them, uh, I'd rather pull somebody who ends up not being concussed than put somebody on a bike and find out later they're concussed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it's a little bit different, uh, decision-making matrix, but when we take this data into account um, is really like the following day. So somebody has had an injury, they are deemed safe to continue. uh, They finish the stage. Then we start to look at kind of how they're recovering each day. And what's interesting there is that at first, at first glance, you would think, Oh, it's not really actionable because they still get up at this time, have their breakfast, get on the bike, do their thing. Um, but there's a lot more flexibility in the schedule than I think we often give credit for, um, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes massages can be skipped, you know, um, there, there's a lot of things that happen almost with this rote, uh, just kind of, I don't know, tradition, uh, at, at the end of the day, you know, waiting, waiting to eat the meal until everyone else is ready to eat. That's great when it's the whole team, everybody's healthy. Um, but if sleep is at a premium and somebody's trying to heal from an injury, then we may say, look, we're going to have your dinner ready early. You're going to skip massage. Um, you may have some like PT or Cairo treatment. We'll do some bandage changes and stuff, but you're going to eat early and go to bed. And then mm-hmm. we can kind of watch those metrics and see how they come back up. So it is helpful in that regard. Um, but admittedly at races were a bit limited because of the you know, competition is going to be what it's going to be. Yep. Yeah, I'm reminded, <laughs> I'm reminded of a handful of stories. One was a very funny, uh, USA pro cycling challenge or tour of Colorado as it should have been called. And, uh, Ivan Basso and I were teammates and he crashed and then he rode back up to me during a very hard section of the race. And he goes, Ted, my wrist is broke. <laughs> I'm like, Okay, I'm not a doctor, Yvonne. Uh, can you move it? And he proceeds to move it quite a bit. And I'm like, I, th- I, th- I think you're okay. Blah blah blah. He goes on to have a smashing rest of the tour. He was he was a very entertaining teammate. Um, yeah, I bet. Another being my second tour to France uh, was characteristic of a lot of crashes, none that resulted in a uh, in any broken bones, thankfully. But a lot of road rash, uh, a lot of wet, nasty weather. Uh, a lot of probably infection going on, bronchitis. And it was just like this cumulative effect of the Tour de France is hard enough when everything's going perfect, let alone when everything is going completely against you. Um, and I was just, when I was done, I was just so, so empty. And it, it, was, it was such an echo, I mean, a, a hollow, hollow feeling. Um, so, so this question is meant to help educate our, our audience. Let's pretend you're watching a bike race. There's a crash on television. We see a rider who, who, from the audience perspective, we know this person is not going to continue in the bike race. They're, they're going to go go back home and begin recovery from whatever injury it is. The next thing we see is the camera's back in the front, and we forget completely about that rider. And you know that's just the circus of bike racing. Um, the question being, walk? Can you walk our audience through that little literal process? in the world tour when a rider goes from the side of the road to being back on track towards recovery. Yeah. So let, let's pretend this rider has the injury that you just had. 
smashed yeah. elbow, right? So not not life threatening. Um, certainly not one that can push through, um, but not requiring like put on a backboard, airlifted anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what we would do is typically the the race car with me and the director would stop. Um, uh, the ambulance would stop. The race doctor would stop. So there's this little medical team there. And frequently what will happen is then the, the team car goes on, leaves me, um, leaves the rider, but they've got to be in the race because there's, you know, seven more guys down the road. Um, so either the second race car will pick us up uh, and arrange transportation, or we'll use the, the race medical resources, ambulance, whatever, to get to the finish and or the hospital, in this case, the hospital. And there is, is pretty much what you experience. We'll kind of go through, uh, you know, I'll, I'll accompany the rider. We'll go through x-rays and wound cleaning and all those things. And frequently, like you did, I will recommend that if the surgery can be done elsewhere, um, like close to the, the rider's home, then we're going to do that because follow-up is so much more easy easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's something that has to be immediately repaired and stabilized, and that's a different story. Um, but you know, it would probably play out my recommendation for what you underwent is, would probably look very similar to what you experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're in a, I mean, a lot of times you're in a little hospital in the middle of nowhere and that plays sure. a role in whether you want to do it. But, um, even if you're at a great facility, uh, you know, you just happen to be wheeled into the top orthopedic facility in the country, there's still an argument for having things done where you can follow up easily. So Mm -hmm. get them cleaned up, get them home, uh, have the surgery. And then the physical therapy and the, the follow-up is all kind of monitored. I'll be in touch with the surgeon. I'll be in touch with the therapist. Um, obviously you're not in a therapeutic stage yet. Uh, we'll follow some of those recovery metrics, um, make sure there's no evidence of infection setting in things like that. Um, but honestly, can I ask you, have you been back on the trainer at all? I haven't. And it's, it's much more because of the time of year and I'm not like, I'm very excited to get back riding a bike, but here we are, what, November 11th. And I'm just like, I don't care. I'm enjoying hiking and, and, and spending time away from the bike. Uh, but yeah, I look forward to riding a bike again soon. (laughs) Well, I I think that there's a lot of good in that. Um, obviously the question frequently is how soon can I be back on the trainer? Right. Completely. Um, yeah. But given the timing, uh, what I like about what you just said is two things. One, you're taking the time off and enjoying it. And two, you're not sitting on your butt. You're going hiking, you're doing other things. Sure. And so the trainer or hiking or whatever can, can often be used as a therapeutic component. So even though a surgeon may say, no, no, you can't get on the bike with this. You can't be doing whatever. Um, oftentimes you probably experience this, that the cycling doctors would be like, well, actually you can under these circumstances. And you know, it's, it's safe. And it's not just that it's safe to push the training, mm-hmm. but getting your heart rate up a little bit, getting some blood flow, um, you know, maintaining stability of the injury, but, but, uh, taking advantage of those processes that occur during exercise. They're so mm-hmm. beneficial. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of that. I think, I think the body just does better when it's active. It's meant to be active. When you sit somebody down, especially when they've been very active, it's not a good thing. And so that, that's a long way of saying uh, I, I will frequently look for ways to get people active and either back on the trainer early at a very low intensity, right? It's just, blood flow and mental sanity. That's it. Exactly. Um, but hiking can do that. Um, you know, going for walks with the family, uh, depending on the injury, you know, going swimming, like there's all kinds of ways to do that. I think that's really important and often overlooked. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and then having those conversations about, um, the, the mental health component. And I don't mean that, you know, mental health has garnered a lot of attention recently and and in the media and for great reason. Um, I don't even mean it to that degree though, but more just like, Hey, it's okay to be a little repressed. It sucks to be hurt. You'll get back at this. You know, every athlete gets hurt. Just kind of at least acknowledge it. I'm, I'm no psychologist and um, 
you know, I, I won't pretend to have all those answers, but at least acknowledge the difficulties with that. And then acknowledge the nutritional component, like we talked about yeah. that, you know, if you, we can see our athletes weights, our riders, and also within my practice, we monitor weights through, uh, uh, like, uh, Wi-Fi enabled scales that upload wow. to, uh, <laughs> online dashboards. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, for instance, if I was still your team doctor and was watching these things and I saw your weight start to trend down, I'd be on the phone pretty quick and say, hey, Ted, no, 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 this is not the time to be losing weight. Yeah. I want to see you put yeah. on a little bit. Um, so it's just kind of that, that global support. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you've been through enough of these injuries, I think to recognize that, you know, that, that old saying that the days are long, but the years go fast. Um, you know, the days are long, but the weeks with this will go quickly. And you'll look yeah. back in two weeks or two months and be like, yeah, that kind of sucked. But, you know, here we are. And I'm loving being back on the bike. And right. um, there's some serendipity to it, too. Yep. Hit it on the head. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I think it is that global perspective. And, and part of it in being OK with the position I'm in is I've been through this before. I know that it wasn't a more catastrophic injury. It's a, there's no right time to be injured, but you know, no better time than now. Um, it's been an interesting year. I broke my collarbone in April. Um, and no doctor in the right mind would suggest that I go race my bike two weeks later, but with a pretty boilerplate clavicle fracture, I had it repaired and I did a gravel race and it was like, all right, things are back humming along. Um, that's one that's uh, I've always found really interesting because the the surgeons will say you know there's some question about the the bone healing around the screws and things like that but it's usually fairly esoteric questions that we can't know the answer to the big question is always well what if he falls again yeah it's like well man what if he falls on the other side and breaks the one that doesn't have a plate yeah what if what if he hadn't just broken it and fell like he might break it so it's you can't you you can't be too cautious around that what if you crash again because you are going to crash again, um, you know, not hopefully that race, but it, it comes with all kinds of complications and potential injuries. And you really have to weigh out which concerns are valid and which ones are maybe a bit too safety oriented that you can never overcome. You know, eight, eight weeks or eight months after a clavicle has healed and plated, the question still arises like, well, what if you crash again? Yeah, right. Yeah, like that's, yeah. So I think you were point being, I think you were fine to do that. Um, and it, it shocks a lot of, uh, a lot of people who don't spend a lot of time in like intimately in the cycling world to see this stuff happen. You know, guys getting back on the bike three or four days after clavicle surgery. Completely. Um, yeah. yeah. But it's, but it's not with a blatant disregard. It's actually with a, a pretty good understanding of what's going on and what risks there are and all that. Yep. Well, exactly. It was it was a funny conversation with it was a race in Texas. Lawrence Tendon was there and he's like, you are crazy. Why are you doing this race? And that was his first ever gravel race in the States. And it wasn't until we got to the finish. And it's like, oh, I get it. Like a world tour Peloton like that would be crazy in my mind to go jump in two weeks post-op unless it's your world championships and you have, you know, flying fitness. Whereas gravel races by and larger are safer to a considerable degree like you i, I call it you can, can, can control your risk quite a bit more yeah um, especially okay. in the part of the race where you're riding the rest of us are back yeah. in hacks but you're with a few people off the front sure that's the hope anyway um now this conversation again it's it's meant to be about recovery so bear with me as i have this sort of uh, uh high level thought um this this may be more of a sports physiology question for folks who are who are deep into studying mitochondria for a living or, or something along that line. Um, cycling, in my mind, is a question of how quickly we can recover. Now, whether that's recovering from a sprint or a VO2 effort or an hour-long climb, it's how quickly you can recover. And then not only that, but how quickly can you recover and do the effort again and again and again and deeper into a race. So that's sort of the micro recoveries that I'm thinking of. And then on the macro level, it's, it's, uh, it's the day after day. It's, you know, the best general classification riders are the ones who have the best recovery over the course of a tour, for example. 
So it's what I'll often call is like who is hurting the least over the long haul. Um, so first order of, of business, do you agree or disagree with that? The, the level of recoveries as it pertains to, to cycling on the whole. I actually agree wholeheartedly. I think, I think there are two different processes which we can talk about, but um, I think on the day that recovery between efforts is incredibly telling for performance because cycling is not a time trial. It's not an Ironman 140 miles head down singular effort. Not that that's actually the case in Ironman, but like, (laughs) you know, it's, it's so many surges and recover and, you know, following that attack and covering this one. And it, it, yes, it's being resilient to those um, repeated efforts of varying duration at times of varying fatigue. Mm -hmm. And it separates the, you know, it it separates the, the front from the back, basically, as you cross the finish line. Yep. Well, yeah, and then it's interesting, you know, to a to a very uninformed audience, people are thinking like, why don't you train harder and then go try to win the Tour de France? And and my answer is, my answer would be all over the place trying to explain this to family and friends, but it's like, this has less to do with recovery. I say there's one Usain Bolt. He is faster than me if he never trained in his life and I was a professional runner, he'd still be faster than I am. Um, so it's just, it's sort of, it's this crazy internal intangible, or maybe it is tangible now that we're studying more and more human physiology who can recover the best. Um, no, I think it's tangible. I think when you yeah. look at, um, and I do think it's genetic to your point with Usain Bolt, mm-hmm. uh, not entirely so, but there's a genetic component. Uh, we are very familiar with looking at, say, someone's VO2 max, their FTP, right? Um, but neither of those are very predictive of performance. They may be predictive of at which level you can compete. So you kind of need a certain VO2 max to make it to the world tour, more yeah. or less. You kind of need a certain FTP to, to make it to the world tour or be selected for the Tour de France. Um, but that just tells you kind of what your maximum output can be in those things. Or... Uh, with FTP kind of a, you know, it's an estimate of uh, lactate metabolism that is a steady state point where kind of accumulation and, and clearance or combustion match up. Um, What's really interesting is to look at lactate tests that are not just a ramp where it just gets harder and harder, but one where you're hit with an effort and you recover and hit with an effort and recover. And you see not only the traditional metrics of how how quickly and where does lactate accumulate, but also how quickly an athlete is able to combust or clear that lactate, which is that recovery point. So you can you can set up a scenario in the lab that simulates a race, you know, effort recover, effort recover. And if you and I went out and we did a four minute effort and Say I was able to hang with you. So it's already a fictional setup here, but four-minute four effort. And then we've got two minutes off before we get to go again, have to go again. For me, you know, maybe we both at the end of four minutes have peaked at eight millimoles of lactate. So a concentration of eight, right? It doesn't matter if you don't understand what that means, but we've, we've accumulated eight units of lactate, right? So for you being, being fit and able to recover better between those efforts, by the time we go again in two minutes, you may have come down to like three millimoles circulating. I may have dropped to six. I might have even risen to nine, right? Like I'm still, I'm still totally saturated. And then we go again and you're fine for four more minutes. I make it about 14 seconds and I blow. Yeah. Right. So that's what happens in, in a race scenario where people are just attacking, attacking, attacking. Uh, that guy who can clear it better is going to is is going to eventually get away, but that's also measurable, and that I think is that's a fun thing to look at in the lab. And that's call it what I was referring to as the micro, and then looking bigger picture day after day after day. This is where I was calling it whoever hurts the least. It's like my experience in Grand Tours was everyone is is depleting themselves in the bigger picture, so that they're going to feel like crap on that first pedal stroke of stage, whatever it is. And so 
in my experience, talking to my contemporaries who are domestiques, it would be like mm, seven to 12 days or so in that window. You're just at this plateau of like, well, I just feel crummy. And then I think the best guys still feel fresh on stage 15, 16. Um, and not only that, well, as a result of being able to feel fresh, they can still do their, like you were talking about, your FTP power, which is an FTP power that you've done in a lab when you're super fresh, let alone on day 16 of a grand tour. Yeah. What What's happening there that could be measurable? Like your... Are your, are your muscles literally torn? Are there these literal buckets of glycogen stores in your muscles that are empty? Uh, what, what's tangible in that bigger picture? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of things going on there. And so if we refer to that first scenario of following surges and attacks as kind of micro recoveries, this is what I look at as a concept um, of resilience like being able to basically come back to a baseline or better uh, in a multi-day race or even across a season or whatever. And this is something that's fairly elusive. It really, I mean, we're all familiar with those stories of cyclists who had amazing testing, like their VO2 max was off the charts and their mm-hmm. FTP was, and then you're like, okay, who is that again? Right. They didn't win anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and part of that, I think, is because they lack this resilience, right? They can't, they may have a flash here and there, but it doesn't play out over time. Um, and there's so many things that go into it. I think the mental component is hugely important. And by mental, I don't just mean like having a strong sports psychology foundation, um, that plays a, a role, but there's actually like neurochemical aspects to fatigue and, and performance and um, kind of how your body is able to turn its governor on and off, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. So you mentioned the fact that in these grand tours about the middle of week two, uh, almost everybody on the team looks totally beat down except quite frequently the team leader who comes kind of bouncing down to breakfast early is sitting there making jokes and everybody else is kind of head down, just getting food in. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's a double-edged sword where on one hand, they're probably a bit fresher. They have the physiology for it. And on the other hand, they've got the, uh, I mean, call it mentality. Again, it's so much deeper than that, but this kind of, uh, you know, this, this feeling that they're not as beaten down because they're not as beaten down. Right. And so it's this, this, this feedback loop where they're just in a better place. Um, so the, the psychological component or what is often called the, the psychobiological component is real and unmeasurable. Um, there is, I'll kind of go off on a tangent for a second. Uh, Alex Hutchinson wrote a great book called endure yeah, and in there, awesome. Awesome book. It's great. So good. And in there, he talks a lot about the, the research of a guy named um, Samueli Marcora, who has done a lot of the studies on this type of stuff. So I highly recommend uh, people grab that book and, and, and take a read of that. But so there's that component. But then physically, uh, the recovery day to day, I think, is one that, again, there's probably a genetic predisposition that some people are just more resilient physically day to day. In fact, I'm quite certain of that without knowing the data, like just experientially, I'm quite certain of that. Um, But I also think there are things that you can do to improve it, right? To measure it and improve it. And that's really the case across sports in general. Like there are always people who are going to have a potentially better predisposition genetically to be better than you, fitter than you, whatever. But there's things that you can do to bring yourself up to and beyond their level with the mm-hmm. training and whatever else. And that, I think that holds in recovery. So, you know, the, the main things, everybody wants to go to the sexy tools that you can use and, you know, what specialists can you hire and this and that, but really it's, it's fuel, you know, refueling with appropriate fu- food, appropriate timing, rehydrating and sleep. Like, yeah. If, if you focus on anything else before those, you're missing the boat. Uh-huh. Um, but if you can kind of nail those, then you can start to look at massage and 
uh, Normatec boots and massage guns and, you know, uh, electrical stimulation, uh, all that stuff. And I, I don't think those are without their utility. There's not a lot of great data for them. Um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I, I did a study looking at uh, various metrics and cyclists uh, uh, from heart rate recovery, internal body temperature, core body temperature, uh, various metrics in the blood work, how quickly they recovered uh, when we would put them in Normatec or ice baths or whatever. And we really didn't see any difference. Right. And, and that's kind of continued to be shown in, in the research. Mm-hmm. I don't think that means that these things are useless. Uh, far from it. I mean, anybody who's used, actually, I bought your old Normatex from you when you, uh, <laughs> when you retired, right. remember? Yes. yes. Um, they're great. They uh, feel amazing. Uh-huh. And so I've, I've since bought other pairs, but thank you for that. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the point is, you know, sometimes there's benefit in just feeling better, right? Mm-hmm. You finish a session with something and maybe you can't measure it, but you feel better. You are relaxed, you sleep better and you get to it the next day. Um, I also think in, in a lot of these recovery modalities that even though the research hasn't borne out objective improvement and recovery, I think there's a very real possibility that we're not measuring the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, you know, things like heart rate and even lactate are going to return to normal so quickly anyway in somebody who's fit that that's probably not where we need to be looking for the, the signal. That, that's a bit of a, uh, a tangent there as well. But um, all that to say, if you focus on diet from like a holistic standpoint, you know, quality, refueling appropriately, and then getting enough sleep, the others are important, but relatively marginal. Yep. Nailed it. Um, yeah, you mentioned Endure by Alex Hutchinson. Awesome book that you and I have talked about a little bit. Uh, Good to Go is just this terrific summary of all of these modalities. What seems to work uh, anecdotally or, or with data-backed science. Um, my next question was what modalities work for you or your riders or your patients? Uh, you know, we just talked about that at, at, at quite length. Um, how about data? You talked about it holistically. Like, do you, do you, do you talk to your patients and or team members and say, you need to have whatever it is like 80 grams of carbohydrate per kilo, or is it more like consume calories how specific do you get there it's probably in between the two so for an event um with my patients and with the riders i work with at the world tour we will put together race plans that are um pretty specific with respect to how much fuel they need to be taken in for a given effort and we'll even base that on their metabolic testing when available to know that you know if they've got um, you know, say, say they're doing big sugar, right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we know about how long it's going to take about the effort it's going to take from a wattage standpoint to do that. And we know for them at that wattage, how much, uh, carbohydrate are they burning or what percentage is, is carbs or glycogen and what percent is fat. Then we can create a plan that makes sure we maximize their carbohydrate, uh, refuel throughout the day. Um, and then, then we'll back that out and try not to present it as much as saying like you need 80 grams an hour, but you know, a bottle of, you know, I'll throw out a few names, scratch super fuel, right. Um, maybe a Morton gel, uh, you know, there, there's different, there's different ways to present it. I think that is easier than keeping track of grams. Mm-hmm. And so we'll do that. We'll also look at kind of the bigger picture of 24 hours surrounding the event, uh, and, and what they need to do leading into it, what they need to do afterwards. And so I think that is important. Um, you can get a lot of the way there with some basic assumptions of, of what kind of works for everyone and target those and train those things. Uh, but it's fun when you can individualize it as well. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. You want to easily consumable from a, from a, not just, 
in the in the figurative sense, you want it to be easily understood what you're supposed to be doing instead of nerding out on the bike, reading the nutrition facts and saying, well, how much did I weigh this morning? It's You can get lost in the weeds so quickly. And I'm just like, eat real food, folks. Um, uh, I wanted to jump back to something real quick. You know, talking about being deep into a tour, you have your GC rider who's bounding down the stairs and still feels like a million bucks. And the rest of the team is a little bit more beat up. Do not to overstate the whoop data. Do you do you see that in whoop data for for the team? Like, are the GC riders still way up there with better recoveries and? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, typically, so what's interesting though, and I think anyone who's followed um, the last couple of years as we've used whoop on the team and mm-hmm. uh, have publicized some of that data through whoop. Um, mm-hmm their recoveries are amazing. And, you know, across a three week stage race, they'll have strains of usually 20.7, sometimes 20.8, which yeah. is, I mean, that's up to a, a max of 21, right. Which I've never seen. I've never seen anything about 20.8. I was just talking to somebody at whoop, uh, two, three days ago. And he is aware he, he'd only seen, yeah, as high as uh, 20.8. And he'd only seen that once or twice ever. So yeah, it's, it's such a crazy logarithmic scale. Anyway, go on. Yeah. And, and I would say the same. I think I've seen 20.8 a handful of times. Yeah. Yeah. Two, three, four times. Um, so they're having these massive outputs, massive strain, but their recovery typically is in the yellow and sometimes in the green. I mean, we don't see too many reds. We definitely do see them, but a lot of times it's, they do pretty well. And a lot, I think a lot of that is testament to the, the support structure they have around them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, very few of us can go ride to that degree at all, but finish up and have, you know, people handing you food that you need and giving you massage and doing chiropractic and, you know, making sure you've got a comfortable place to sleep and all these things. Um, so I think, I think a lot of it goes to that, but they're also just amazing physiology, uh, that self-selection or that selective process that gets him there gives us an unfair group to kind of compare to. Right. (laughs) Um, But that said, even within that group, there's variation in recovery. And I will say there are some guys who just seem to have, they either have the, uh, the strategy nailed, like they figured out what works for them, or they have this physiologic genetic predisposition toward recovery. And I think it's probably a combination of the two. Yeah. Um, and you've seen it too. I mean, some of these guys, they actually get stronger in the third week. Like they're not just fresh, yeah, yeah. but they're, they're performing better than they did week one. Yep. Yeah. It, that was always baffling to me because that goes back to who's hurting the least, which is probably true for 95% of the Peloton in a grand tour, except for that magic 5% is just like, they are storming in week three. Um, which is cool to see. And that's why let me don't ask just you a question race in the lab. Yeah. So is it, is it easier? Do you feel fresher as a domestique when your team is either in the Jersey or, uh, or chasing an objective that you're just right there about to get versus one of the years where it's just like, well, somebody please just get a podium in a stage. Yeah. Um, I mean, having the luxury of racing for Sagan, it was cool because we always had a very tangible goal. Um, you know, so yeah, it's it's easily it's easier to be motivated, um, and you get out of bed that morning feeling better, ready to go with a very specific goal. Yeah, I I think I mean the reason I ask that is I think there's a big component of that, and one I'd be interested to see across data like Whoop where, you know, in a year where, you know, we're maybe aiming for the podium and we're holding on to it and the team is excited about it and pushing versus a year where, you know, by week three, we've got four riders left and, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a struggle to even make it to the, the start line. Irrespective of fitness and everything else, I would suspect that even the physiologic data looks wildly different mm-hmm. based on the emotional circumstances that you find yourself in yeah well and that that's what i was hitting on a second ago but you hit it on such a better degree like 
the sport of cycling, um, it is in the real world. And there are so many intangibles beyond somebody's FTP or VO2 max or a Matacrit. Like, yeah. it's such a cool, crazy experience, circus, uh, emotional roller coaster, especially over the course of a couple weeks at a time. I mean, it's, you know it, I know it. Cycling fans everywhere know it. It's just such a cool, different sport than than so many others. It's special um, and unique. That's why it's yeah. Funny. And then I was, uh, I was listening to our pa- our last podcast. Um, I want to say that took place summer fall twenty eighteen, and it was cool talking about the the evolution of the team. Like you were saying, like the EF is super strong this year. Um, I mean, it's cool to be duking it out and winning a lot of stages and, and, you know, fighting for grand tour podiums, uh, as opposed to, I mean, yeah, it's a work in progress. And my last year, 2015, that was a rebuilding year. And it's like what you were saying. It's like, yeah, there's a lot more pedaling around and, and hoping for something as opposed to the, the goals you're striving for. So it's been, it's been great to see from the sidelines. Um, and congrats to you and the team for doing it. Uh, well, thanks. Typical three questions I wrap with are, are moot since I've already asked them. So here's a, here's a random smattering three questions. Um, going into 2022, how many days are you expecting to be on the road? Um, with EF, I expect to be on the road 55 to 60 days. Um, I travel with some of my other athletes in PGA and, and other uh, do, I'll do some, be at some gravel races with some athletes. Um, oh, that's funny. So I'll spend more time on the road, but 55 or 60 world tour days. That must be a spectrum. I, I, when I, when I hear PGA, I'm just picturing like baller private jets having a heck of a lot of, you know, time at the Ritz Carlton versus going to a gravel race. <laughs> I won't say that hasn't happened in that way, but that's not typical. Um, okay. but it is, it's so much, uh, you know, in France, the joke is always we end up in these crappy little French hotels that oh yeah, oh yeah, they're horrendous. You would you would never stay there otherwise. Mm-hmm. And for PGA, we're usually at a nice resort and we're there all week. You're not packing yeah. up every night. Like yeah, it's pretty cushy comparatively. Sure, you're like oh my gosh, what am I going to have for brunch today? Um, <laughs> uh, looking over the course of your time with the team and and in the World Tour, what is your longest stint that you did in Europe? The longest stint in 2019, my family and I, uh, we actually pulled the plug on the U.S. and I went on a sabbatical and we moved to Girona for, um, well, it depends. If, if, you're, if you're with any kind of immigration uh, authority, it was three months, not a day. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we might have snuck a bit beyond that. We had, we had a great time. Nice. Awesome. Great answer. Um, I asked this in my last podcast, and I think it's a really cool, wide-open question for anyone. What is your favorite workout? Ooh. So, um, man, I would say I have two. Um, And not to get too, like, heavy right off the bat, but I've actually been dealing with AFib myself all year. And I've not been able to do a whole lot. I mean, I've been active, but I can't push too hard or I go into AFib. Um, And so right now, like I rode my bike to and from work the last couple of days, 35 minutes each way, and absolutely loved it. It was gorgeous. So it's, and even going for walks, like I've I've never been for walks before. And this year I've had to dial it back and have really enjoyed walking through my neighborhood. These are not my two answers. I'm going to give you a better answer. My point is, I hope to not be doing this forever. Um, My point is slowing it down and appreciating the activity and appreciating some of the places. Like we've got a beautiful neighborhood. There's a river that runs through the neighborhood. And I've frequently run through there and walking through there. I've seen stuff, permanent things that have been there that I've never noticed before. Yeah. Um, Views that I've never seen before. So that has been uh, really amazing and something that I've 
something beneficial I've taken away from all this. Mm-hmm. Um, however, once I have my ablation, which is the treatment for this, I cannot wait to get back on the bike for a long ride through, um, like on the, the foothills parkway and through the great smoky mountains rides I've done with you, mm-hmm. um, that are just gorgeous, not many cars up and down, beautiful views. Um, and hopefully do it, uh, with, you know, good friends again, do it with my son who's really getting into it. So that would be number one, kind of a nice long ride, no time constraint, yeah. no specific training goal, but just volume, just to get yeah. the volume in. Um, and then secondly, I, I've really enjoyed being in the gym. And so not that you can tell from looking at me, still very <laughs> small, but I, I enjoy um, doing some resistance training and just kind of feeling that total body fatigue in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, so balancing that endurance side of it, but then hitting some real strength and kind of movement-based stability stuff. And between the two of those, I, when, when I can kind of go back and forth between those two in a week re- repeatedly, I feel great. Like I'm in just a really good place. So both of those, I'm, can't wait to get back to perfect great answers um yeah this is the first year that i'm actually gonna put a concerted effort into the gym in many years and i'm like i'm really looking forward to it and it probably has a lot to do with this big uh uh big period of time off it's like shoot let's get some strength back so yeah for sure super cool resilience that's what exactly resilience there you go um well i won't take any more of your time uh huge thanks to you for for donating an hour of your time and insight uh this has been awesome thank you kevin oh thank you it's my pleasure thank you very much for listening hey let's state the obvious crashing stinks but it has definitely lit a fire under my butt to get up to get out to record more podcasts I already have a handful ready to be released. They are already recorded. So please stand by for some awesome guests and conversation forthcoming. Hey, have you found any of the Whoop Talk interesting? Yes, they are a sponsor and I am as dyed in the wool as it gets. I love Whoop. Full transparency. I freaking love it. Laura, my wife, loves Whoop. Everyone who I meet who is a Whoop user is also dyed in the wool. They get it. They see the value it brings and they love it. Hey, real quick, if you're interested in getting a brand new Whoop 4.0 for free, just visit join.whoop.com slash TED. That is going to be a $30 savings right there. And lastly, if you are not using Ride with GPS, frankly, I don't know what you're using. I use the desktop version. I love the mobile version. Honestly, I love all things that Ride With GPS does. Another key feature is their heat maps. That helps me see what routes are actually rideable, what roads are dead ends or actually passable as seen by locals. It's all anonymous, so there's nothing that, that, that is being exposed, but it's really cool to use that heat map feature. I highly suggest checking it out. Ride With GPS is offering 25% off either monthly or yearly subscriptions. Just visit the website, ridewithgps.com slash DC slash I am Ted King. Again, ridewithgps.com slash DC as in District of Columbia slash I am Ted King. That is it from here. That is all from now. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride.